True Crime or Tall Tales, the true crime podcast where I, Kat, or my co-host, Jacqueline, or our other special guest, Ashley, will tell you two stories about heinous crimes. One is true, the other, not so much. How's everyone doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great. I'm very excited for this. I am fully prepped for this episode in my true crime podcast sweatshirt and my true crime watching slash listening blanket. I am comfy. Comfy cozy? Comfy cozy. And I love that I brought up two things that you can't see as listeners, but I just love all the gifts Ashley gave me. (laughs) You're welcome. Speaking of Ashley, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Had a good day at work. Bit long. Bit burnt out, but I'm ready to hear about some true crime or false crime. False crime. <laughs> so it's a true or false test. True or false test. That's our whole podcast. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's just a big game of true or false. All right, I'm doing. I'm doing pretty well myself. I spent a few days hammering out these tales, so I'm really hoping that I might be able to trick you. Maybe not, because you two are geniuses. But yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Getting comfy cozy and wearing some wine pants. I'm also describing my outfit. Sorry. I'm not original. <laughs> Maybe we'll post to Instagram. Right. Maybe we'll give the the listeners something to look at. Ooh, my pajama pants. Well, in the theme of getting comfortable and getting cozy, uh, it is time to get comfortable because we are about to get uncomfortable here. So grab some soup, Maybe a big blanket, or if you're like us, you're probably doing things while listening to a podcast like Dishes or Driving, so get as comfy as you can. We're dressed comfy to record this, hopefully you can get comfy too. Today's theme is poisonings. I freaking love that. <laughs> I could not be more excited for a topic. Well, now I know what method of murder Jack is going to do to me. <laughs> anyway, so today's theme is poisoning. And to get into that, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of poisoning, just to just to give us a little, a little, a little bit more of something, a little, a little bit of something to sink our teeth into, before we get to the stories proper. So, poison, histories, murder weapon. Just kidding, I'm not going to do that voice. Uh, poison has a long history, of course, seen as it's you know a lot of it's derived from plants or naturally occurring things like you know. Think of a poison dart frog. <laughs> um, so its uses reach as far as weaponry, medicine, and of course, murder. Obviously, it was discovered in ancient times. It is one of the most ancient modes of murder. Timeless, really, hasn't gone out of style. Um, and was initially used in like early civilizations as like a hunting tool. You would, you know, dip the tips of your arrows in some poison to make it really pack a punch. So like even if you didn't hit a major thing, that deer or that enemy is gonna die. So, obviously, it didn't take long for people to, you know, turn and use poison on each other, you know? Uh, as early as Roman times, uh, poison was used amongst the nobility to get rid of political enemies, and in medieval times, poisons began to be used medicinally. So in the right doses, a poison could, you know, benefit a person. Oh, your heart rate's a little high. Let's give you this or something. But if you go a little too far, you're going to end up in the ground. It's kind of like anything in moderation. Yeah, everything's okay in moderation. (laughs) 
Um, apothecaries of all sorts sold, like, poisons for medicinal use, but poisons also had other uses, such as killing rats or other pests, and various different types of poisons such as arsenic and strychnine, and even today small doses of poison are still used in pesticides. So, everything's good in moderation. Poison can come in many forms, like I said earlier, it's often derived from plants, such as belladonna, which was used uh, as a beauty thing for a while. What? People would put, like, like, like the liquid from the belladonna plant into their eye to dilate their eye to make them look more beautiful, but this also inevitably led to blindness. Wait, I'm sorry, quick anecdote. Do you remember that um, graphic novel I got from the library? Was it called Belladonna? No. Did it talk about Belladonna? Yes. Lovely. No, but you know that one where I showed you and it had all the really intricate illustrations. Oh, the- like the spaghetti face monster? Yes, yes. Horrifying. Um, what was that called so we can recommend it? <laughs> oh, God. We'll put it in the show notes. Okay. <laughs> um, no, but that literally happens in that graphic novel. The the little the little apprentice boy went to his little girlfriend and said, hey, I have access to all these poisonous plants, but guess what? Belladonna is sometimes used to make people beautiful, but also it'll help your grandfather with his heart problem. And then she used it in her eyes and she died. Yep. Yeah, it could do that. It could do that. And speaking of other, like, poisonous beauty products, um, take the Elizabethan era. The paint that they would put on their faces to, like, make them, like, all, like, pale and beautiful was often with lead. So, you know, inevitably led to death. Just like what I said with lead, lead is a metal. It is a compound easily found on the periodic table. Another such poison is arsenic. Arsenic is highly toxic. But you know what it also produced? Other than death? What? Tell me. A pretty green color. So in the Victorian era, people thought it was a great idea to, you know, put arsenic in their wallpaper or in the fabric of dresses or even in food because the color was that beautiful shade of green. Wait, wait, wait. Were food dying with arsenic? With arsenic. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I'm not... I'm not surprised. Yeah. (laughs) Horrified, but not surprised at that era. Yeah, yeah. So, also, I mean, there was, like, scientists that told people in the Victorian era, hey, don't be putting arsenic in your home. It's toxic. The Victorian people, for a while, actively didn't listen to the reports of, hey, it's toxic. So, these inadvertent poisonings were often fatal, and people just actively went, but it's pretty. A lot of them stopped. But some people went, it's, but it's pretty. How bad for us could it really be? And you know what? I could be that idiot. I love green. <laughs> I love the color green. I might be fooled. So, poison is considered one of the most insidious ways of inflicting death due to its intimate nature of administration, especially when it's done with malice, you know? The body reacts so violently to poison. Common symptoms of poisoning can be nausea, vomiting, seizures, mental confusion, Stomach pain, weakness, just to name a few. Taken, these depend on the type of poisoning, but more or less the symptoms are the same. It's just a very ugly and kind of, right, insidious evil way to sort of kill someone. Always are evil. Don't get me wrong. Don't get it twisted. (laughs) We're not (laughs) recommending murder. Always are bad. But there's something about poison that just, it's so, it makes it so personal. Like, you can have a violent, like, stabbing, and it's very personal and everything, but blood gets everywhere. A violent death of poisoning is so internal 
you might not have a blood spatter crime scene, but it is tragic nonetheless, and the psychology behind the poisoner is messier still. <laughs> like, holy moly. Right, like, it's, I feel like some people want to say, like, oh, death by medication or poisoning. It's like, oh, well, at least it wasn't bloody. They went out peacefully. We made it painless. And it's like, no, most poison is quite painful. Yeah, but I don't really want to, you know, kick the bucket by not knowing why I'm dying and vomiting and having seizures suddenly. It's not a fun way to go. Also, poison is often sometimes called the woman's murder weapon due to its accessibility. I didn't... You can kill from a distance. You can kill from a distance. I am not talking about this case in my stories today, but didn't write this down. This is not my notes. This is going off pure memory. There was like a woman, I think an Italian woman, she killed like hundreds of men because she kept selling poison to their wives. I, yes, I've I, heard of that case. <laughs> I don't remember her name. I think it's an Italian woman. Don't quote me on this, but it's in the back of my brain. But with that history out of the way, let's move forward to our cases. Speaking oh, of poison, poison, the one that our bodies will tolerate to an extent oh. and is legalized by the government. My goodness. You're right. I totally forgot to talk about the wine. So before we get into our cases, all right, so... Jacqueline, for Christmas, got me an advent calendar, a 12-day wine countdown, and I thought it would be a cute idea to open it up because it's now way, way past Christmas. It, we're, like, mostly through January. It's not an advent calendar anymore. And remind you, I actually handed this to you on New Year's Day. Exactly, exactly. So what we're thinking of doing is just opening up one of these bottles of wine on the podcast so let's open up door number one it's a holiday sweater oh my god wait is there no name it's a cabernet sauvignon thank you you're welcome i take french on duolingo <laughs> not sponsored not sponsored all right anyway uh, let's crack this baby open all right let's get the good asmr that is not doing any asmr actually <laughs> well it's not opening either I had to grab the pliers for the nips the other night, so... For the nips? Yeah, they were, um... Ashley? Oh my god, here, ASMR. Let's try Ashley's the strong one of the group. Sweet! Thank you, Ashley. You're welcome. Yeah, it's good! It has a little bit of a bite to it, but, like, it's dry and earthy, but, like, still kind of juicy. I'm not a wine connoisseur. I will use improper language. We are also all above the age of 21, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's earthy. It's dry, but... Nice. And I'm not, I'm not just saying that to keep it positive on this Oh no, I will I will rip a wine to pieces on this podcast. This is a dry ride I, I could sip. So case number one, Dirty Inheritance. This is a case that is a classic open and shut case. And as we will find in both of our cases today, it's a classic example of the husband did it. I know you're wearing the wrong shirt, Jacqueline. That's my favorite shirt. For those that don't know at home, <laughs> Kat for my birthday gave me a t-shirt that says, the husband did it with a bloody knife. And I love that shirt. I wore it on Halloween's work. And I also just recently wore it axe throwing. Nice. Because I'm kitschy. <laughs> well, this case will not involve any knives. Seen as I already told you it's poisoning, so get out of here with that. Let's get into it. So, during the fray that was World War I, Emily Cavendish, a wealthy widow, having come into her incredible fortune and estate from her deceased husband, 
decides to remarry. You know, good for her, girl. Remarry. Yeah, you gotta move on. You gotta move on, right? So she marries this wartime secretary. His name is Alfred Ingalls. Oh, we're in England, by the way. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Across the pond, as you yeah. can say. Yeah, we're in Ingalls. Not Ingalls. <laughs> we're, we're, we're in England. Emily has two sons from her first marriage. Her sons are John and Lawrence. They're both adults at this point. John is married. Lawrence, I think, is seeing some lady. Good for Lawrence. Good for Lawrence, am I right? Her sons stand to inherit the most amount of money when she passes away. But Emily's new husband, Alfred, wants a little bit of that inheritance money, right? You know? He's he's a nice, respectful guy who totally respects that his wife has more of an income than he does. He's just a wartime secretary, right? He's just mad respectful. No, I can see you shaking your head. <laughs> so Alfred wants in on that inheritance money. Yeah, it's very clear that it is a the husband did it case. <laughs> but we'll we'll continue on. It's clear who our perpetrator is. Not too long after marrying, Alfred concocts this plan to off his wife, Emily. Like, quasi-immediately. Like, really just gold-digging right here. Like this So, is... like, he walked down the aisle thinking, how soon after she signs this paper can she fall down the stairs? I got this wealthy broad to walk down the aisle with me. I want her cash. Not her sons. I want it. Me. Alfred. Probably one of those assholes who felt like he earned it because he yeah. went through all the trouble of marrying her. Yeah. <laughs> I sacrificed so much I married a widow. Gross. Bastards. Anyway, right? Um, but that's not even the worst part. So Alfred actually concocts this plan to kill Emily with Emily's good friend, <gasps> Evelyn. I couldn't find- I'm sorry, what? Right. I couldn't find any sources that said that they were like maybe having an affair, but I'm gonna jump to that conclusion. I'm sorry. If you are a woman who's willing to help a man kill her best friend, don't. You, I'm sorry, at this point, you better be sleeping with him, because otherwise, why? Right? Right? Don't get confused. I'm so sorry. Their names are so similar. So we have Emily, we have Evelyn, we have Alfred, we have John and Morris. I'm sorry, which one is our victim? Emily. Emily, Emily. is our victim. Okay. Corpse Bride. Yes, Corpse Bride. I was just about to say that. Okay. Okay. Poor Emily. Poor Emily. Okay. Emily, being the wealthy woman that she is, has a pesky habit of revising her will constantly. <gasps> you know? She's a little tight with those coins, and she wants to make sure that when she goes, they go to the right person. Also, I love the idea of this woman being like, I have my lawyer on speed dial. Y'all piss me off, you're coming out of a will. Well, it's World War One, so it's 1916, so, you know, maybe a pesky telegram, darling. I will telegram the lawyer right now. Uh, I kind of imagine it's a situation like the lady. Fr I don't mean to disrespect Emily here. I'm so sorry. But like like the woman from the Aristocats. Like she calls her lawyer over and she's like, I want to make sure everything goes to my cats. Like this is Emily. Okay. I want to imagine her living lavishly like the woman from the Aristocats. I want to be the woman from the Aristocats. So I was going to say, everyone, some people are like, Ed Edgar had motive. I'm sorry, no. That woman did nothing wrong. She loved her cats, and there's no shame in that. There is no shame in loving your I'm, cats more than your butler. I'm sorry. <laughs> also, I'm sure he was gonna get something. He was just basically was gonna get everything. Yeah, he was just not gonna get everything. Like, that's on him, Edgar. That's on you. That's on your conscience. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Okay, so Emily likes to revise her will. So the first task for our diabolical duo is to 
you know, somehow forced Emily's hand to revise that will, right? They kind of want to, like, egg her on to be like, hey, you know who shouldn't be on that will? John, your eldest son. They're putting wedges in between a mother and her grown son. Right. So, as stated before, her sons are Lawrence and John, and they stood to gain the most. Um, But Alfred wanted more. So, the second task, after, you know, forcing Emily to revise the will, is to, of course, kill Emily. And the third was to place the blame on someone else. Who other than to place the blame on John? They want to place the blame on John for this killing to get him not only out of the will, but also, you know... I mean, you need a scapegoat. Blame it on him. Uh, so the two of them decide to buy strychnine, a poison that is commonly used to kill rats and other pests, but in the time, higher doses, deadly to humans. Most poisons. Do it in moderation, guys. <laughs> like, <laughs> no deadly doses here. Right. So when inhaled or absorbed or ingested through the mouth, strychnine will result in muscular convulsions and death through asphyxia. Really awful way to die. It's an especially awful and cruel way to die. When inflicted by someone's newly wedded husband. Right, like, you probably share a bed with that man. At least a bathroom. Like, you trust him. Right? And he's gonna give you that kind of death. Well, let, let me remind you that they are incredibly wealthy. So it's oh, like so they, they, they have their own bathrooms. So they, they have their own bedrooms. I don't, I don't even know if they're really in love. You know, think Downton Abbey. It's like, they have two separate bedrooms, but they, they have the one room that they use to canoodle. You have a separate sex bed? Rich people. Do you remember when they tried that on um, How I Met Your Mother? Lily and Marshall, they got a separate sex bed? Yeah. Yes. Good show. It didn't go well. <laughs> Good show. Ended horribly. Emily and Alfred want to place the blame on John, so they falsify a note for the receipts of the purchase of strychnine to John. They, like, forge his handwriting and everything. They're, like, they're... That's falsified documents. Yeah. They're faking the receipts for the purchase of the poison in order to place the blame on John. But they also place a false note incriminating John of infidelity in the hope that this would force Emily to write him out of the will due to her high standards. She doesn't abide by infidelity. The family is very important to her, you know? You know, you're rich. You gotta make face. The papers are always looking. Right, and yeah, she's the kind of old rich lady I imagine her to be. Right. She's like, I will not put up with the- with The, the, the scandal! Sinner. The scandal, the sinner of a son. Right. Um, this is also supposed to supply the motive for John, because in the same sweep, oh, he was just cut out of the inheritance because of his infidelity. He's gonna kill her for revenge! And Which any good insurance investigator would say, why wouldn't he kill her before he was cut out? Right. So, not a very well thought out plan in my opinion, but, you know, it's Alfred and Evelyn. They're- colluding with each other to kill their newly wedded wife and best friend. So I don't put it past them. So how to get Emily to take the poison? So she's an older woman. Her, both of her sons have grown up and everything, and this is her second marriage. Emily actually suffers from epilepsy. So she regularly took bromide to help assuage the seizures. Alfred and Evelyn plan to mix the strychnine into her regular dose of medicine and hide it in her normal routine. So were they... Well, in order planning to frame John, were they also maybe hoping that it would just look like she overdosed on her regular medication? I think so. But I think that, like, I, I, I believe that's the case. But, you know, with adding the extra thing where it's like, let's make sure that it looks like John purchased the strychnine. I'm going to make sure that I'm out of here. 
the time that like the dosage would happen, so I'm not even on the premises. Oh, also, so case. John's so, making sure he's out of the house. Alfred is making sure. He's sorry, out of the house. sorry, Alfred. Alfred needs an alibi. <laughs> Alfred's making sure he has the alibi, and I'm, who would who would blame poor Evelyn? Evelyn's not even in the will, so, like, she's just there to kind of make sure it happens. Right, like, she really would not necessarily be a suspect. Yeah. This is kind of like a a full house clue situation by the end of it, by the amount of people that are just in the house when the crime actually happens. So I've discussed how they're putting the blame on John, right? They're putting the blame on John. They wrote a falsified note of him purchasing the poison. They made a falsified note of him having an affair, and they decided to hide the poison in her Romy. They also, Alfred cuts the rope to her service bell. You're shitting me. No, I am not shitting you. He makes sure, okay, so think Downton Abbey with this big mansion house, right? So, like, you have that little bell to, like, ring if you need, like, assistance or anything. He cuts that to make sure that if she's in her death throes and she tries to call for help, no one will hear her. I'm sorry, That's like taking off someone's life alert and then pushing them down the stairs. Right? It's bad. It's really bad. So with that plan in place, Evelyn and Alfred only had to wait. So like the next day, John had invited like a friend Arthur over. Uh, Lawrence has a lady friend, Cynthia, over. Oh my god, everyone's having dinner. Like we have a big cast of people. I mean, John and his wife Mary are there. Mary, we will discover... Little, little tidbit about Mary in a moment. It's like a little weekend getaway. Like, you know, they're a, a weekend at the big house. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So Alfred left the manor before lunch the, the following day and went to stay elsewhere. He wanted to go and visit a friend in a neighboring town. He didn't know if he'd get back late or anything, or if at all. They were, they were, they were all chums, you know? So when you say Alfred left the following day, like the day after he laces her regular medication. Right, she takes it in the evening. So I think he laced it, like, that morning. Okay. So he left the following day before lunch, okay? And mm-hmm. he was like, I'm gonna go to, like, town over. I'm gonna be hanging out with my buddy. Who knows when I'll get back. I might just stay the night. We're gonna drink some. You know? That that kind of situation. It is 1916, so it was a little bit more proper than the way I'm saying it, but, you know. Yeah, you're, you're gonna see a buddy. You're gonna go see a buddy. Stay at his house, maybe. So he would have an alibi for when Emily inevitably takes the poison and then passes away. Right, and so, like, I don't know the coroner um, knowledge of 1916, but even if the coroner said, she's been poisoned, this would have killed her in three hours, I don't know. He'd be like, well, I've been gone since this morning. Yep, exactly, exactly. So at lunch, though, uh, family's at, lo- at the dining table having lunch together and everything, and the falsified letter incriminating John of infidelity is revealed. Mary, John's wife, was outraged and wished to look at the letter herself. Wait, who revealed it? How is this revealed? I don't know. Sources were a little iffy on this one. Um, Like, it's a, it's a crime from 1916. I'm working on small little articles. <laughs> I think I think the the letter I I didn't write this in my notes. I'm just trying to remember from the articles, but I believe that the letter like was like put on like Mary's desk. Like it was like posted like to oh like you know like, like how a butler would be like oh mail ma'am on a silver platter on a silver platter. You know it like it, but like at lunch Emily brought it up. Like the letter was planted at some point. I don't 
really recall how, but it was planted. It was given to Emily. Emily oh was God. like, what the fuck is that? Or what is this? She's pissed. She is pissed. Mary, John's wife, is like, I want to see this. Like, she's now pissed. Because like, she thinks he's cheating, he's on, cheating her. on her. But Emily refuses to let her see the letter. Emily is, you know, thoroughly upset with her family. Like, this is a scandal. You uh, having an affair? Like, she's, like, thinking of ways that she's going to have to cover this up or anything. And so she keeps to herself for the rest of the day and even into the evening, completely upset with her family. On the morning of May 20th, 1916, the body of Emily Cavendish Ingalls was found by the family and guests at the manor house in her room and in her bed. You know, kind of strewn about in her bed. You know, she had death throes and stuff. It's not not a pretty sight. She had not been gotten up for breakfast, and she always joined the family downstairs, even after, a, like, a fight or anything. She needs time to cool off. She won't, she won't ever take breakfast in her room. So... She didn't come down, so people went up to check on her, and lo and behold, she's dead! Oh no! And immediately a detective was called onto the scene. I mean, as he should be. As he should be, you know. The family actually was first to lay blame on Alfred. He returned that morning. They immediately said, yo, her new husband's shady. Shady as So they, they initially, like, they first laid blame on Alfred. Somehow. Good hunch, guys. You got it. You got it on point, guys. And even Evelyn, you know, his compatriot in this dastardly deed, decided to throw him under the bus and say, yeah, maybe Alfred did it. I mean, she doesn't want to be up. If she's the only one that's like, no, guys, it couldn't be Alfred. They're going to be like, what do you know? Right. You won't be on the losing team. But with his airtight alibi, he was in a different town. How could this at all be blamed on him? I was out, guys. Couldn't be me. So, upon investigation of Emily's room, actually. So, just just to so you know how to place things, this one's really complex. It's a very visual crime very, for our audio very, podcast. Yeah, very visual crime for our audio podcast. Family goes upstairs. You know, it's probably like a maid who went to check on her, screamed, and then everyone trudged up the stairs and went, what's wrong? And then they all find the body of, you know, Emily Cavendish after, you know, she didn't come down for breakfast, and she usually does. And then it's like, oh god... Everyone is in the room. They call for a detective. Further investigation of the room, obviously, as one does. Body, room, investigated. So there actually appeared to be burnt scraps of the will in the fireplace. The detective later interrogated each of the house guests. I'm not going to go through each of them, obviously. Take too long. But Mary, uh, John's wife, cracked under pressure, actually, and admitted to putting a sleeping powder in cocoa she had given Emily the night before. I didn't mention this earlier, just for quirky timeline things, but Mary, as, like, sort of, like, an apology thing, was like, just your olive branch. Here's some hot cocoa, Emily. I'm so sorry that I got really upset about my husband's infidelity letter. Can I see it, hot cocoa? She's buttering her up. Yes. But <laughs> she put a sleeping powder in it, so that in case Emily was like, you still can't have the letter, Mary, Mary was planning to sneak into the room. Mary's to, like, you gotta sleep at some point. To, to steal the letter about her husband's affair. But while she is in there stealing the letter, because what I said happened, Emily was like, thanks for the cocoa. 
leave. I'm not giving you the letter. I'm still mad. (laughs) Mary comes in, sneaks in. While she's trying to find the letter on Emily's desk, Emily starts to go into her death throes, like having the fits and the convulsions from the strychnine and everything. And poor Mary thinks that it is the sleeping powder that she put in the cocoa. So she flees freaking out. But she's thinking she's killed her mother-in-law. Thinking that she's killed her mother-in-law. And so she's like hysterical. But upon like investigation on the sleeping powder, it's non-toxic and wouldn't contradict or have any like issues with the bromide so it wouldn't be the cause of death here right so mary was cleared for emily's death so mary's off the hook basically major suspect number one cleared right investigators actually strongly believed it was was alfred he had motive you know despite the alibi they were like, this alibi cannot be as airtight as it seems. Right, exactly. And, like, they saw, saw like, the cord was cut, too. Like, they were like, this is not just her passing away. There was malice there was forethought. Malice. Like, Alfred was the only one to have the true motive to kill Emily. And the scraps of burnt will that I talked about a little bit earlier, revealed that Alfred would inherit most and John had been written out. That will, the revi- it was a revised one, was burnt. Okay, so... So Emily had burnt that. Oh, so she wrote John out and then at some point decided, no, 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 this but is, this will not be now, that Now the question edition. is, why did she burn the revised will? Well, that's what I was thinking when you said it. I'm like, if Alfred's not there, he can't burn it. But also, if it's the most revised will where John's written out, he wants that. That's he what wants he wants. That. That he would want that. So we can assume that Emily saw something that made her question the revision that she made and destroyed the revision herself. Just more evidence needs to, like, be there to incriminate Alfred. They just can't get past that alibi right now. So, while looking around Emily's room, the investigators actually find, on the mantelpiece, three rolled-up pieces of paper. What could this possibly be? We have the scraps of will on the floor. What is this? These rolled up pieces of paper were like fire starters. So like you could like roll up like any scrap piece of paper and just use it to like light it and then light your fireplace in the mantle. They were little fire starting wicks. But when unrolled, these wicks were in fact the incriminating letter that Emily must have discovered the night she met her end, which pretty much revealed the plot between Evelyn and Alfred. Alfred and Emily had it in writing, and Emily found that letter. So Alfred was dumb enough to write it down? He was dumb enough to write it down. Oh my god. (laughs) He was dumb enough to write it down that, "Mm, Evelyn, I think we should kill Emily, and I'm going to to poison her and make it seem like John did it. Like, literally clear as day. I would like to quote. Another podcaster, Heather McKinney from Sinisterhood, say it and forget it, write it and regret it. Yeah, like, when I tell you, it's, like, it's so dumb. Like, it's so, it's like, oh my god, you had it in writing. But now the question is, how did it get rolled up and ripped up there? I don't think Emily would rip up the letter herself, but it is a letter that Alfred wrote, you know? So upon the detective, like, the lead investigator, like, pressing him, Alfred fucking fumbles under pressure. He breaks. He's like, he oh man. Like chair. He folds like a goddamn chair, kid. <laughs> like, like he, he admitted to ripping up the letter when everyone was in the room. He caught sight of the letter, went, oh shit, and ripped it up and rolled it up and like put it on the mantelpiece like that morning when the family went, oh my god, Emily! Oh my god? Yep. And so when the de- detective like found that, it's kind of hard to, we, we, 
yourself out of there when Weasel it literally says, Hey, Evelyn, you want to kill Emily with me? The yeah, there's really no misinterpreting that. There's, there's really no misinterpreting that. He had really hoped that someone would have lit the fire with those letter pieces before the detective you know, had a chance to look on the mantelpiece like a thorough investigator. So he he folds like a lawn chair. He confesses easily and investigators, while looking around the premises, find a cabinet where he had stashed the bottle of strychnine and the actual receipt for the purchase signed by himself. Wow. Yeah. Alfred and Evelyn were arrested, <laughs> obviously, for the premeditated murder of Emily Cavendish Ingalls. The case opened and shut in a day. Wow, solved that day. Like, it didn't really take that long, but it was, it was, it was a pretty clear case. Well, yeah, when your perpetrators, luckily, are stupid, and write down basically their whole master plan (laughs) in a letter, and then somehow leave that letter to be found by the victim? By the victim, and yet she still died! Poor Emily! Well, that's the bad thing about poison, is she barely, I mean, I don't know how fast this poison acts, but she very well could have found it after she'd taken her medicine. Yeah. Like, after she'd taken her medicine, she's like, oh, fucking shit. And her bell was broken! Right, she can't call for help because they fucking cut her life alert. <laughs> she cut her life alert! I'm sorry, that's all I can equate it to. <laughs> yeah, basically. But yeah, really unfortunate case. And, you know, it just, it just sucks for Emily. Like, she, like, she was probably wicked hopeful about having a second marriage because, like, her, like, she was widowed years prior. Like, she raised Aww. her sons from that marriage. Like, she thought she had, like, a second chance at love. Yeah. Fucking don't go in with gold diggers. Well, and I think, like, obviously there's no ever a good reason to kill someone or commit murder. Right. But it just feels extra. It just feels worse when it's just for money. Yeah. It's, it's really dirty when it's for money. And, <laughs> but, um, segueing into our next case. Um, it's also just really dirty when it's literally just out of being a woman-hating asshole. Yeah, that's worse. Yeah, I'm going from inheritance, like, like a monetary, like, motive to having literally just, just murder as the motive. So another thread that we have in common in these cases, not only poison, but it is Husbands murdering their wives. I know. Double whammy. Like our previous case, this case involves a newlywed couple. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Really got a theme here. Really cynical on marriage. Right? (laughs) Let's get into our second case. So this case is called Black Widower. Love Mm -hmm. it. -hmm. I'm sure I'll hate it, but love it. Right? Okay. So, interim era England, 1901. Um, nope, not 1901. I don't know how to read. 1902. The following year, actually. Close enough. Close enough. He's that early time. Pub owner Jeffrey Burroughs hires a new barmaid for his bar. Mm. Mm. Quirky and cute. You know, doing business. Working woman. Working women. But also, it's the... I'm gonna. I'm just gonna call it the Victorian era for ease of things. The turn of the century, darling. Victorian era England, you know. Hot young... Single woman comes to work at your bar. Basically, two weeks later, you're married. Yeah, you're, you're, you're going to try and you're going to try and sleep with her. They hit it off immediately. So this young woman, her name is Madeline Boggs. Oh, good for Maddie, right, Maddie? 
let's go. She's a working woman, but then, you know, she falls in love with her boss. You know, HR might need a thing on that, but it's Victorian England and it's at a bar, so. HR doesn't exist. HR doesn't exist. And also, this is probably the plot of several romance novels I've read. Right? Exactly. At least the beginning. I Not the not the poison. Exactly. I mean, um, when the, weddings work quick in this time period. <laughs> um... But, like, not soon after they get married, Maddie starts getting sick. Sick, like, like see something's bad in her food sick? Yeah, like, something might be bad in her like, food. Or... Like, Crimson Peak sick. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> actually. A little bit of Crimson Peak sick. A little bit, you know. There's, um, you know, she's vomiting all the time. She's weak. She's having constant headaches. She's wasting away. She's wasting away, poor girl. And it's not consumption. And it's not consumption. She's not coughing up blood. She's just vomiting and she can't keep anything down. She's getting dehydrated because she's losing fluids because of the constant vomiting. You know, she's ill. She just suddenly went from being a nice, bright, you know, quirky barmaid. She's doing things, hopping along the bar. They get married and it's like pretty soon after. So they get married... Okay, so she starts working at this bar in, like, August-ish? I'm gonna guess that, like, by October. There's not, like, a lot of concise dates or anything, but, like, I'm gonna say, like... We can guesstimate. Yeah, like, pretty soon after that, she gets married September area. October, she's probably really, really ill. You know, she's sick. A doctor is called in, in tandem with Madeline's mother, Mrs. Boggs, to do everything that they can to heal the girl like she's just wasting away and no one knows why and you know her husband is really really upset about this he's just like i just married the girl you know we were gonna have our whole lives together he's really distraught right like you're in that honeymoon phase like you you're like i've got the rest of our lives ahead of us right i would say if you didn't already tell me he was the murderer right i was just about to say but lest i remind you this is titled black widower (laughs) Hmm, suspicious. Sounds like someone's putting on airs. But, you know, like, uh, she's so sick, they actually sent her to the hospital. Um, and she's there for 12 days or so. Like, she's there for a while. But, like, while she's at the hospital, none of the doctors can figure out what's wrong with her. But she at least starts to seem like she's getting better. I was about to say, is she getting a little better at the hospital? Oh, yeah, um, of course she's getting better Certain someone doesn't have access to her food. Yeah, of course, of course she's getting better at the hospital. So good, in fact, that they release her. They're like, well, we never figured out what's wrong with you, but you seem fine now, so go home. Right, it's like you kind of stopped throwing up and you kept down a meal, so I guess you're fine. Like, let me also remind you in the time period, like, this is, like, 1900s. England has, like, a history of cholera epidemics. Cholera is, like, a disease that, you know, makes you throw up and shit yourself and all that fun stuff. It was caused by, like, bacteria in, like, unclean water. So, you know, Britain, having had big cholera epidemics at the time, were like, we don't want this to be that. But they didn't find cholera. They didn't find anything. They were like, I don't know what what this girl is dying from, but apparently she's fine enough to go home. But as soon as she gets back home, her violent fits and throwing up starts to come back again. Obviously. (laughs) Right. That tends to happen when the person who's supposed to, you know, maybe help bring you your food is killing you. Right. Exactly. So her mom is getting really, really distraught. Her husband is getting really, really distraught. 
Wink, he's not. He's probably he's just trying to be a good actor. He's probably more distraught. Why why isn't she dying faster? I mean, like the doctors actually are going like she's strong and she's young and she'll make it through. She's very strong. The he's fact like, that and she's he's made, like, I need her to not be strong. The fact that she's made it this far isn't a testament to her will to live and her love for you. He's like, that doesn't work for me. I wanna throw up. He's like, mm, I want her to go away. But like, mind you. Unlike our previous case, this one doesn't have like the she's wealthy type of thing. This is just pure horror story. So, but if they're newlyweds, mm-hmm. and it doesn't appear that she's pregnant, so nope. it's not like he married her because he had to by society standards. He, so, in my mind, he clearly went into this with the intention of I shall marry this girl for the pure ability to then kill her. Which I beg the question: Could you not have just? Not that I'm condoning this, but could he not have just killed her without marrying her? Right? I mean, that's what any sane, insane person would do, am I right? Just kidding. Well, here's another tidbit. So, this was not Jeffrey's first marriage, actually. He's like, serial, darling. Serial, serial killer and serial dater. <laughs> I was gonna say, forget serial dater. We've moved right <laughs> into the horrifying time frame of serial, serial killer. killer. So, the doctor who Jeffrey had hired to attend his now ailing wife Madeline had actually also attended Jeffrey's previous wife who passed away also of a mysterious illness that he couldn't like diagnose. This is either a shitty doctor or a shitty situation. I'm gonna go with both on that one. Did Madeline know he had he was widowed? I honestly don't know. I think this like he has such a gaslighter personality with the way that he talks to like the doctor. I can only assume that Maddie didn't know that he had been married before. Wow. So he's just, he's really taking advantage of the fact that you could just move one town over and just assume a new identity, basically. Yeah. Like, it's just a really unfortunate situation. And also, like, again, I'm picking old cases, so there's, like, low amount of coverage or things on them. She very well could know that he was, like, a widower. You know, it was very common for people to be widowers at that time. Um, I mean, you got so, cholera running rampant. People are dying left and right. People are dying left and right. So you know what? Either way, it's still just a sucky way to go. You know, either either she is totally oblivious to the fact that he has been married before, or he is very upfront about it. And she's like, oh, poor Jeffrey. Can I care for your wounds and love you in this life? And he's like, yeah, but not for long. That was um, that was both wonderful and horrifying. Um, entertaining because yeah. you gently stroked my wrist. I added that for the theatrics. Horrifying for horrifying. the fact that um, he is like not for long. Yeah, not for long. But moving forward, the doctor had attended Burrow's previous wife. He couldn't diagnose his previous wife's illness and just chalked it up for her having a weak constitution. Like he just said, <laughs> "Women are weak, <laughs> fragile women." You know. Sexism. It ran rampant just like cholera. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. Um, but mom wasn't satisfied with this doctor who had already let Jeffrey strong arm him and everything and kind of let Jeffrey off like the hook and everything. The mom vied for a second opinion. So she brings in another doctor. So the second doctor also can't determine what's wrong. Is this... anyone even considering poison? I don't think they are. Like they're really going like it's just food poisoning or i don't know she's just dying like they really like were like both the laziest doctors i've ever like read about like it's like are you are you not going to do anything 
can you like can you like look harder please this is stressing me out like her mother's like could you at least maybe just tell me why she's dying even if you can't fix it right Ultimately, the second doctor doesn't have the same prejudices um, or, like, biases that the first doctor does. Because the first doctor is like, Piffle, my dear boy, I've seen Jeffrey here deal with his wife dying before, and he was very, very upset at her death. Model of a grieving widower. And new doctor is like, buddy, I don't want to say it, but we need to start thinking about whether or not this is foul play. Right, it's like, Like, you should be the one putting these pieces together. You were there the first time. Right, exactly. So, the fact that, like, the previous wife also passed away of, like, a mysterious illness, he's very suspicious. But, you know, despite all of their, their, like, attempts to, like, hydrate her and everything, Madeline- Keep her alive? Keep her alive, hydrate her, you know, all of their efforts, you know- this is, I think this was scientifically past the point of bleeding your victim. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad they didn't put her through that. Yeah, no, this is, this is, like, 1902. We're, we're past that, but, and leeches, no more leeches, but, you know, surgery, we may or may not wash our hands. I, I need to, that. I need to reread the butchering art so I get my facts straight again. Sorry. I, I have no medical degree. <laughs> but, you know, despite their efforts... Madeline ultimately succumbs to her this mystery illness and passes away. I feel real bad for Maddie. Maddie did not know what was happening. She was just newlywed being like, I just, I just want to be with you, you know, to her husband, Jeffrey. And, you know, and he's like, yeah, baby, you're going to get through this. Like, the mom is, like, totally believing him, too. Like, she couldn't imagine him, you know, being... Uh, like a murderer or anything like she loves her her son-in-law he's so sweet he's so caring he's so attentive he never leaves her side oh yeah so no one else can check her fucking teeth yeah he is very insistent about being the person who like gets her like her water and stuff he's like i gotta do something i gotta feel useful i hate when they're good actors mm-hmm. also Going back to Maddie, by a modern standpoint, she's living the fucking dream. She married her boss, got half the business. If, right? You know, women had rights. If women had rights in the Victorian era. Like, this should have been a slam dunk for her, and then he turns out to be a psychopath. You, know? you know? Maybe the fact that he married his employees. And similarly something. to Emily. Emily, in the previous case, she's just a widower who wanted to find love again. Not a widower. A widow who wanted to find love again. She found this nice guy who she thought, like, hey, maybe he won't be, you know, after my fortune. It's, it's and then 19, he kills it's you. It's 1916. He might not make a lot of money, but he's a military secretary. Respectful job. She thinks he has honor. Honor. Dignity. Pride. No. Only murder in his eyes. Greed. And the same thing goes here. Like, she thought she had, like, the fucking high life. And then, bam. She passes away. And she's young. Is like, 1920. What a baby. 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 Meanwhile... Lest I remind you, he is a widower, so, like, you can imagine that he is older. I'm thinking 40. It's something like that, I think. Okay. That's what I'm imagining, at least. Like, I have 46 in my brain. Okay. So, Jeffrey pulls the grieving husband routine again, and this time, even the first doctor is like, I'm not believing this, actually. The fact that this happened twice, and you're kind of going to these- I had a nickel! So, his suspicions- we're stoked. So this doctor was the one that supported Burroughs in the past, but it would not work this time. The first doctor advocated for Burroughs' guilt, Jeffrey's guilt. 
So, upon further investigation, the police had, like, a hunch. They were like, I don't think this is the rabbit stew. I don't think this is food poisoning. We're gonna go ahead and think that this is real poisoning. Let's get you in custody, and let's look around your pub. And they lived sort of, like, above. Okay. I have a question. Autopsies a thing that they regularly do. Autopsies are a thing. Because in the butchering art book by... Oh my god, I'm blanking on the name. Oh my god, oh my god. We'll put it in the show notes. Please. Oh my god, I'm blanking on the name. Butchering art. Oh my god. It's Lindsay Fitzharris. Lindsay Fitzharris. Fascinating read, even though I only read half of it during the pandemic. So I need to finish it, actually. (laughs) Okay. But that book talks about the history of early... surgery and like medicinal practices um in the victorian era so like around 1860s was when things started to become a little bit cleanlier in surgeries and also in the victorian era like crime scene photography was more of a thing crime solving was starting to get a little bit more in depth they were getting the sciences involved so autopsies were a thing this is in 1902 um circling to my special interest (laughs) jack the ripper uh (laughs) was in 1888, and there were autopsies on those victims. So, there could be autopsies here. So, if they could do an autopsy, but also, I imagine there's not toxicology reports, maybe aren't going to find evidence of poison. Perhaps not. So, upon investigation, police found in the pub above, which the couple lived, they found memorial cards for two other women. He's keeping souvenirs. Something like that. I mean, they do share his last name, so it's like, oh, these are his wives. And also, memorial cards actually were a common keepsake from funerals. I'm operating under the assumption that Maddie probably doesn't know that he's a widower. Like, that he's kind of trying to erase these women from his past. Yeah. But you keep, I don't know, the thing that proved, that reminds you that you succeeded in killing them. Yeah. So, our lead detective finds these cards. He also finds medical books. May I remind you, this guy owns a pub. Right, he has no need for science. No need for science. And a jar of tartar medic, which... Emetic uh, is a word that means, like, vomit inducer, basically. So, like, Ipecac is also an emetic, but tartar emetic is specifically antimony potassium tartrate. So, it's poison. I also apparently don't know science because those words meant nothing to me. Well, antimony is an element on the periodic table and so is potassium and tartrate. I don't know, it's science and together those things make deadly poison recipe. Wow. It's a jar of poison. So I'm imagining maybe this exists for like, oh God, I just like ate a, I just ate something awful and I need to throw it up. You might take a little bit of this. Right. Or like say you are you're choking on like a little bit of something. If you take that this vomit inducer in a small dosage, you'll throw up whatever you swallow wrong. Um, right. It's used for emergencies and in small doses. And in small doses. So the fact that he has this much, it's kind of incriminating. Not a lot of people have tartar medic on their hands. So, basically, that is the nail in the coffin for our killer. Um, he is caught. Jeffrey Burroughs definitely killed his wife, Madeline, by poison, and likely killed his other two wives as well. Wow. Like, I'm not shocked, but cuffed once again, and, for why? Cuffed and in the clink. Our guy is caught. Lock, stop, and barrel. Wow. Well, I'm gl- obviously, I'm glad he got caught. Um, I'm still over here just like, why'd you do it? What's the motive besides obviously just wanting to kill people, but why'd you have to marry her if she has no fortune or dowry to speak of? It's literally, I guess it's just women hating. You know, it's like you can create a monster 
out of, you know, what's, what's the scariest thing, though? Like, a motive or just killing for killing's sake? Oh, yeah. To quote Scream, I think, it's scarier when there's no motive or no reason. It is very scary when there's no motive. And this is thoroughly scary. Because, like, she just had hope. His previous wives probably just had hope. Well, and what, if I'm thinking about it from, like, a psychology standpoint, I imagine it's a, a little bit like Munchausen's by proxy. Oh, my God. So, like, um, it's not so much where, like, he got to... It's not so, like, when a parent does it to a child where, like, you get all this attention and possibly money and support and all that, but it, he still, A, holds all the power over her, and B, yeah. you do get to play this sad, grieving man again, and perhaps you get off on that. You get some sick jollies from that. I don't want men to have sick jollies over anyone's death. Thank you. I, I mean, yeah, that is the worst. <laughs> um, Please, no one, do that. No, thank you. Please L- don't. Listen, is our whole thing not we get cozy to get uncomfortable? I am thoroughly uncomfortable. Yeah, I think if the idea of sick jollies don't make you uncomfortable, maybe you should go see a psychiatrist. (laughs) Yeah, agreed on that one. I'll give you some time to deliberate, but I want to know your verdict. Which was the true crime and which one was the tall tip? Hey folks, before we give our big reveal, pause and go to our Instagram, at True Crime or Tall Tale Podcast, comment on this episode's post, and tell us which case you think is the true crime, and which one is the tall tale. Then tune back in to see if you were right. Thanks for listening, now back to the show. Do you want to go first, Ashley? Okay, I believe I recognize the second story. I don't know if it's from Murder Maps, or if it's from something else, because in, in my head I have like... The whole, like, how they, like, acted it out on the TV. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, you can see the scenes? Yes, I can see the scenes, like, how they did them. And it could just be a very similar case to what I'm thinking about. Because when you were talking about the first... See, I'm, like, contradicted. Because when you were talking about the first one, when you said, like, your offhand, like, no no disrespect to Emily. It sounded very serious, and I was like, you wouldn't be saying that if it was a fictional character, unless you're trying to trick me. But it was very much a like little added thing. I don't know. Could have been in your notes. I'm gonna say this. I don't know. Jackie? <laughs> <laughs> we can get, we'll, we'll come back to that. What are your thoughts, Jack? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I'm kind of stuck on the motive. And I'm like, all right, cinematically, my first thought is the first one I think is just slightly neater because you have this clear motive. You have this these casts of suspects that detectives can go through. And then you have these kind of very clear moments of evidence where you get to hold up the John is a cheating letter and it's a very dramatic scene and then obviously she passes and that's very sad and then you have the whole oh but the secondary character snuck into the bedroom so perhaps it just feels like you said it's kind of like a cast of clue I, I could not tell you if it is the tall tale which one it is like I literally don't recognize it I'm just trying to use my um, critical thinking skills <laughs> and so part of me is like all right that one's a little more clean cut would that be more appealing from like a screenwriting perspective to kind of keep everything neat and tidy clear motives clear suspects clear ending and you have this cast of characters but then I'm also like but it's not as if there's no villains in media that are just evil for evil's sake. So I'm conflicted. All right, let me, let me dissect this. So the second one, you also kind of have some clear cinematic moments of like, oh, they're happy, they're in love. You know, they meet. It's a meet cute. Yeah, because when, as I said, Crimson Peak moment, 
several things in, in the second story very much remind me of Crimson Peak. Obviously, Crimson Peak, there is a motive in that movie, which is... Obviously, there is a motive in that movie, which is financial. They're after money. It's still fucked up, if anyone's seen that movie. It's a good movie. You should watch it. But yeah, like, cinematic-wise, like, I can see where the second one would also do well cinematically, other than no motive. And, like, I know it's not, but I got weird twinges from the second one of Dracula. <laughs> like, I know it's not, but just the whole, like, she was very sick, and the doctors came, and her mother was by her side, and it was... And he had wives before, but I'm like, it's not. Part of me was like... Hopeful? Part of me... <laughs> part of my ears twitched, like, a little bit at it. that's my ears twitched at the mother thing because i as i was saying i i feel like i remember an episode of something and i don't know if it's like it was like a true thing or if i was watching like a falsified thing i have no idea but it's in my brain somewhere and i specifically remember the mom being like we need a second opinion because i don't believe you yes yes that sticks out to me but i don't know i feel thoroughly stumped i think you've done a great job Catherine, on this one yes Finally! Um, <laughs> it's, it's demo four. I think this is going to actually be well, episode this, one. This is episode one for listeners at home. Thank you for tuning in. Cat <laughs> says finally, as if we've done like 17 practice episodes. We've done four, but it's still a lot. I'm excited to start this podcasting journey, guys. My verdict, I'm also still kind of stumped, but I'm going to say the second one is the true crime and the first one. Okay. I would be inclined to agree, but I'm going to be a little a little sneaky if I'm right. And in the second one, where I talked about how Maddie was living the dream and got to marry her boss, and I said, oh, you know, that's great because that's probably the first half of this is the plot of probably many fictional romance novels I've read and Kat made a face. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to make my whole decision based off that face, which you, the viewers, couldn't see. <laughs> um, it's a good face, by the way. So I am going to, for entertainment's sake, I'm going to be opposite Ashley and say that the first one is the true crime and the second one is the tall tale. All right. I want us to insert a drum roll. Black Widower, case number two, was the true crime. All right, Ashley. Hell yeah. Case number one, Dirty Inheritance, was the tall tale. Ash had it right on the money with her hunch that it was based off the murder maps. It was episode two, and it is- Season one. Season one, and it is titled In the Shadow of Jack, (laughs) and it is the George Chapman murder. Yes, okay, I was- So, (laughs) all right, so let me scroll down to my facts. So you were right, it was murder maps. Season one, episode two, In the Shadow of Jack, talking about the George Chapman murder of Maud Marsh. So let me dissect how I reworked their names. So George Chapman, I changed to Jeffrey Burroughs. Jeffrey, just so we have this consistent G starting name, but Burroughs is actually inspired by the street that the pub was on. So it was Ah. the Burrough High Street, and he was known as the Burrough Poisoner at the time. He was a Polish immigrant whose name was originally Severin Antonowicz Klowalski. What a name. Yep. Uh, he was known as the Borough Street Poisoner. He was at one point in Poland a felcher, which is a military barber. So a lower military, like lower than a military surgeon, but it allowed him to have rudimentary medical knowledge. That's why he had some medical books. So that okay. Was, that was right. true fact. It wasn't a respected position. So he emigrated to England. That's where he 
became the proprietor of several pubs, one of which burned down before he came into owning the Crown Pub. I would just like to say, based off this man's character, insurance fraud. <laughs> insurance fraud. Arson. Arson, oh no! <laughs> and his last wife was Maud Marsh and not Madeline Boggs. Kept the name starting with an M, because Maud, Madeline, Marsh, to Bog. I like that. That one's kind of fun. That one was kind of fun (laughs) to do. So tartar emetic was mixed with Mod's water. It was a powder that was dissolved completely clear and thus it concealed it perfectly in the water. Like dissolved completely and in the sight of like everyone. So like no one would notice. The doctors wouldn't notice. And who would bat an eye about a husband providing more water to a person who's been vomiting and dehydrating themselves because vomiting dehydrates you. You're asking them to drink more water. Yeah, the perfect vehicle upon which to poison them. Sorry, so I have a question. So is the, what's the name of the poison? Tartar emetic or antimony potassium tartrate. So the tartar emetic, is that a odorless, colorless powder? Yes. Wow. Sneaky bastard. Sneaky bastard. Sneaky bastard. Um, also, the jar of, like, tartar emetic found by police, it was revealed that it was only, he only had one ounce of the substance. That doesn't sound like a lot, but that is enough of the substance to kill 40 people. <gasps> Why is it so powerful? 40 people. It's so powerful. I'm like, how, how would you even dose that if an ounce can kill 40 people, how would you, how would you portion that if you're just using it for its Rain of rice Are you size. using a toothpick? To like, 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 insane. When you brought up, uh, when I was talking about this story and you brought up autopsies, I actually excluded including the autopsy report in the case to try and throw you off. Oh, to make it so, less detailed. So when you were like, were autopsies a thing in this time? And I was like, I'm so glad I didn't talk about autopsies. Because <laughs> clearly, I don't know. Clearly. <laughs> so the first doctor who, his name was Dr. Stoker. I almost kept his name in because Bram Stoker wrote Dracula. And then you said that I would have been convinced Dracula. it was Dracula. I should have kept it in. Which is so stupid. But then part of me was like, what if Ash for some reason remembers the name involved in the Murder Maps episode? <laughs> I have such a short-term memory. <laughs> I can't... Okay. I won't even get into that. It's bad how short-term anyway, my memory is so the first doctor's name was Dr. Stoker. And he was the one that was there through his second wife's... I literally just called Bess instead of Bessie. Her name oh, was Bessie. Just shortened her. I just shortened it. I was like... You won't know, but I'll leave out the doctor's name in case you recognize that. <laughs> Sometimes it's weird little details. You know, it's fine. But the first doctor who had originally believed his grieving widower sort of routine actually was the one that refused to sign the death certificate for Maud without a postmortem being done on her. Oh, okay. So he really was vying for an autopsy to be done. The mortuary upon which they decided to do the autopsy was actually just down the road from the pub. Um, you know, you keep things close back then. close. In her stomach, they found um, a substantial amount of antimony. So it's built up from the poison. Built up from the poison. Um, and it could not accidentally make its way into, like, a body or anything. Like, it is a metal, and it's not gonna be like, oh, you ate a bad rabbit, and the bad rabbit had antimony in it. No, that's, like, deliberate. So it had to be administered by none other than George Chapman. And also, during the autopsy, the mortuary that was so close to the pub, at one point the doctors realized that they had that quirky feeling of being watched. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Does this man break into the mortuary? He's like peeking through the windows and like listening to the door of this mortuary. 
And, like, they, like, turn and they see someone flee in the direction of the pub. And they're like, it has to be Chapman. I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh at this true crime. But the idea, it's both horrifying and, it's like when you- But, like, it's, like, something that's, like, so real and so ridiculous. Yes, it's, it's like if we could actually see Michael Myers run. (laughs) No, no, because it's, no, no, it's horrifying to imagine this murderer- peering at you as you do his wife's autopsy like what could he do to you but the idea of seeing of seeing this man lean his ear against the door and then scuttle away in a fedora i'm imagining a fedora is is just comical yeah it 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 provokes a laugh because you know this man deserves to be laughed at because fucking murderers don't deserve any praise no and like i'm sure the technicians were a little scared, a little spooked. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they're like, mm, I got that hair on the back of my neck feeling that I feel like I'm being watched here and listened to. And then they, like, make a move and then they hear, which is awful. Although I will say, it's probably a little bit of a relief that it's not a corpse giving you that feeling. Yeah. If I was a, if I worked in a morgue and I, which by the way, for you listeners at home, I don't have that feeling. That whole, I feel like I'm being watched feeling, I don't have it. I have very poor survival tools. You don't have that feeling? I literally don't have it. One time my sister stared at me for 10 minutes straight, waiting for me to notice and look at her so she could have my attention. And she said, Jack. And I was like, what? She's like, I've been literally looking at you for 10 minutes. You didn't feel that? I'm like, what? No, I don't. I don't have that feeling. Oh my God. I feel watched just hearing you say that you don't feel watched. (laughs) Like, You haven't noticed that? No. Whenever Jack's just, like, doing something in the kitchen and, like, bopping along, we'll just sit there and watch for, like, well, I mean, I've been- So long. I've been on the other end where it's like, yeah, we get to watch Jack dance in the kitchen for so long, but, like, it's never been to a point of, like, someone be- could be holding a knife behind her for 20 minutes and she'd just be like, la da Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, wait a minute. <laughs> Listen, I'll be the first to say it. If I am to be murdered, God forbid, it is most likely going to be- while listening to a true crime podcast and being oblivious to the idea that someone is watching me. Yeah. <laughs> How unfortunate for you. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry about your lack of self-preservation. I'm gonna move on. You oh, have it oh, hold on, sorry. Ways. My, my point of bringing that up was if I worked in a morgue and I did have that feeling and I felt it while working on autopsy, I would assume a body had rolled out of the freezer and was looking at me. That would be my worst fear. So it would almost be a relief if it was just this weird little man. You don't like the paranormal and you don't want a haunted corpse. I would much rather have a haunted corpse than a murderer. Actually, yeah, no, but I I don't really want either. No, none of them are good. None of them are good options. But anyway, the police had that little hair-raising moment and they could safely assume it was Chapman trying to, like, listen in and also the running in the direction of the pub. You're not sneaky. You're not, you're not being sneaky. So, okay, another odd detail. Chapman was actually in police custody when the funeral of Maude took place, even though he paid for the entire thing in full. Maybe he got off to just paying for funerals, which maybe he could just be a charitable person instead of calling Yeah, you don't, you don't have to create a corpse in order to pay for a funeral. Unless he also just likes people... You know, being like, I'm so sorry for your loss. And he's like, thank you. I really think it's it's a it's a weird variation of Munchausen by proxy. He liked being symp- a sympathetic character. Yeah, I just, I don't like or appreciate it. 
But, so he played for the funeral in full, but he also sent a, like, a wreath, like, a, a funerary wreath, but signed a devoted friend. Not loving husband, I miss you so much, baby, I wish you could come back. A devoted friend. Wait, wait, wait. But do people know it's from him? Yes. Oh, so it's, it's a devoted so, friend, so it's, George Chapman. So it's not your loving husband. To Maude Chapman. Yeah, this is not to my beloved from your eternal loving husband. It's this is to Maude from a devoted, devoted friend. friend. George Chapman. Y'all were y'all were married and you're signing a devoted friend. Yeah. That's some bullshit. It is devoted to killing her. Right. <gasps> Another fun fact, as fun as the fact that you can get about murder, Charlie Chapman actually came across George Chapman in his youth. Charlie Chapman, you know, silent film star. Yes, yes, know? yes. Yeah. Did you you had that vacant expression because you didn't know who I was talking about for a split second? Okay. Yeah, awesome. I'm like, I really should know that I don't know it. Yeah. Charlie Chaplin silent film star, when he was a wee lad in England, stopped at the Crown Pub to get some water. George Chapman handed him a glass of water, and hair on the back of his neck went up, and he went, you know what? I don't feel like I should drink this water. He scurries out without drinking the water, and two days later, George Chapman is under the, under arrest for the murder of his wife. <laughs> Oh my god. Well, it, murder for, for Maud. Maud. They can't prove the other ones. They can't. Well, <laughs> they can. <gasps> they haven't yet, though. <laughs> they haven't yet, though. Well, yeah, they kind of did. It's like basically. I'm just wrong. <laughs> yeah, you're just wrong, actually. But, like, George Chapman was arrested for the murder literally two days after Charlie Chapman was there. That's so eerie. And part of me wonders if there actually was, for some random reason, poison in his water, or if, like, Spidey senses and, like, he got a vibe that said. He just got a vibe. That the water here is not safe. I think he just got a vibe. Like, I mean, like, okay, this guy had, like, a big handlebar mustache and kind of, like, had that, like, look in his eye. Like, he just kind of... George? Yeah, George. Oh, okay. Like, he looks like the guy who ties like, women to train tracks? Yeah. He, he does! He looks like Snidely Whiplash. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Let me... Like, is that not a villain? Come on. Yeah. Alright, so I, I would describe for the listeners at home who can't Google right now. This is the same yeah. image. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is that meme from The Office where corporate has asked me to find the difference between the two images. And it's George Chapman is the first photo. And a literal cartoon villain who ties women to train tracks is the second photo. And they are the same image. <laughs> yes, they are the same image. He really looks like train tracks man. Train tracks, villain, snidely whiplash. It's it's rather he's yeah. awful. Uh, Chapman had killed three women, but some sources say five. <gasps> Was he uh, married five times? I don't know. I really want to find. Well, okay. Here's here's another thing that's a little a little iffy. Some records say that all of these women merely posed as his wives, like they weren't ever actually married in any legal capacity. Well, others say that they were actually married, or they're calling them their wives. So there's a little continuity error in that. How would it benefit these women to just pose as his wife instead of being married? Is it just to avoid, like, scrutiny of living with him and not being married? I think it's kind of like the, the like, in the time period where it's like, you know, you wouldn't, like, you can't just have a roommate kind of say that you're like, yeah, that's, that's my wife. Like, you just never did the legal thing. It's almost like a, like a... Common law marriage? Common law marriage. That, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so George Chapman killed three women, confirmed, though some records say five. Some records also say that these women merely posed as his wives, while others say that they were actually married. It's a little foggy, am I right? But we won't get into that. So he killed Mary Spink, or, or Mary Isabella Spink, 
1897 and Bessie Taylor in 1901. Uh, Maud was killed in August of 1902. After Maud's autopsy, Chapman's previous wives were actually exhumed. <gasps> And evidence of antimony was found in their bodies as well. So you have a clear linkage. So that means that antimony stays in the body for at least a year. Yeah. I mean, one of them was killed in 1897, so that's like five years. That's wild. Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, well, it is a metal compound, so I think antimony is on on the periodic table. I think it's its own element. So the fact that the metal kind of stayed in their system even after the fact um, makes, makes sense to me, at least. This evidence was actually used in trial, so the fact that antimony was found on both Bessie Taylor and Mary Spink was used in the trial against George Chapman for Maud. And even though he was only charged with Maud's murder, he is guilty of the the other murders, obviously. (laughs) They are credited to him. And it's interesting that he wasn't on trial for the other murders, but their evidence was used to support the fact that he murdered Maud. Right, they were setting up a pattern of behavior. Right, the evidence of all three got him hanged. And the jury actually only took ten minutes to reach the guilty verdict. I wish you could see my face net right now. <laughs> what? A gape. He was executed April 7th, 1903. Also, just another fun fact, when he was initially arrested, he was arrested on October 25th, uh, 1902, which was the coronation date for King Edward VII, Queen Victoria's son. Chapman was so worried about being arrested and put in handcuffs in front of the amount of crowd because his pub actually had a good view of, like, the coronation parade that he was like, no, 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 no cuffs. Bad foot business. <laughs> it's comical that he went willingly with the police. No handcuffs. He was like, fine, I'll go with you. He's like, I don't want to cause a scene. I don't want to cause a scene. What a psycho! Right? Like, come on! And my last fact, because you expected of me, Chapman, of course, was a potential Jack the Ripper suspect. Really? <laughs> yes. Uh, although offhandedly, um, and in my opinion, not in any serious capacity. So due to an offhand comment that someone in like the courtroom after the guilty verdict, I believe, said to Inspector... Abilene, who Chief Inspector Abilene was like the major guy working on the Jack the Ripper case back in 1888, someone said, so it appears you've caught the Ripper at last, (gasps) leading some people to believe that Chapman was Jack. There are some coincidences in the profile that match, such as rudimentary medical knowledge, the area upon which he lived and operated was the same East End London Whitechapel area, and a clear hatred for women. Yeah, Um, once again, we talked about motive earlier. It seems like it's pretty irrational motive. But in my opinion, uh, that's where, like, the similarities end. Though he was violent and had, like, a history of abuse, I believe, though, that the differences in, like, the approach to the murder like murders rather is like a clear distinction between them jack being violently and like gorish out on the street really mutilating bodies and physically tearing their insides out showed a lot more of an outward aggression meanwhile chapman although clearly he hates women wanted to see them suffer in a more slow and diabolical way both are diabolical and bad, but they're different. Right. Like, if Corona Minds has any real knowledge to offer, I would absolutely be like, those are two completely different MOs. I would not right. link them to the same person. You have a similar, not even a very similar victim pool because one's going with their wives and other the other is going after random prostitutes. Right. You basically just have, you're both killing women. Yeah. 
That's a that's about Killing women it. operating in the same sort of time and physical sphere. But right. You probably possibly maybe lived in the same town at the same time. It's just and we're killing women. Yeah, it's just horrifying that to to think that there was more than one women hating serial killer operating at the same time in the same place. But in my opinion, Chapman is not a viable suspect for Jack. So. Right. To me it's more insane that he would kill Two different sets of women in two very different ways simultaneously. Right. So that's what I have to say about the George Chapman Burrow Street Poisoner case. And now I can tell you about my tall tale a little bit. So Yes, I wanna know. <laughs> fun fact about my tall tale. It wasn't initially what the tall tale I was going to go with. The tall tale that oh. actually inspired this theme of poisoning. Um so it's actually based off of an Agatha Christie novel that I have never read <laughs> and that there is no movie adaptation for. Did you spark note it? I did, I did indeed. You fucking use spark notes. I, I love it. <laughs> I use spark notes on this. It's interesting that there isn't like a movie adaptation on this one because it actually is based on, oh, well, maybe there's a reason. It is Agatha Christie's first published novel. Mm. It was published in 1920. And it the is debut. The debut. The debut novel. It is called The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Very oh. creative name. Uh, the title. Yeah. It is Agatha Christie's first novel and it was the first to feature detective Hercule Poirot. Like, the, the character that you, like, see repetitively in, like, Murder on the Orient Express or Death on the Nile. This is, uh, like, Agatha Christie's guy. Um, right, this is where she is developing her ideal detective. Like, she would go on to write Hercule Poirot in 33 novels and 50 short stories. She liked him. She liked him. Actually, no. <laughs> later, later on, she would go on to call him an egocentric creep. <laughs> Honey, you wrote him. After she found him insufferable and writing so many stories featuring him, she actually became sick of the character in the same way that Doyle became sick of Sherlock Holmes after writing so many stories about him. Like, it was like a point where you go from, you know, really liking your character to going, I fucking cannot stand my own character and now I'm stuck with this guy. Right, because my first thought is, well then stop writing him, but if you are a serial novelist, and everyone buys your novels because they love this detective or they at least love some consistency it's, throughout it. You kind of yeah. have to keep writing him. It's like the same way as being like typecast. Like I, what comes to mind is Bela Lugosi. I'm circling this back to Dracula. Dracula was such an iconic role for him. But he, by the end of his life, was like so bitter about being only associated with having played Dracula that all of his other roles got like kind of you know, washed thrown, away, thrown under the rug. But yeah, I'm a monster. I did not read this. I spark noted it because I did my research over the past three days. I will say, if spark notes was good enough for me in 10th grade English, it is good it's enough for this podcast. good enough for me in this podcast. I just, I feel a little disingenuous, but you know, there's a lot of details that I left out in um, this spark noted and then rehash thrown up version that I did. <laughs> Because I didn't read the novel, and the spark notes kind of made it a little bit confusing. So there's characters, details, red herrings, and the Norm Purr and Agatha Christie novel that I didn't include to make sure it didn't sound too much like Clue, even though I did mention Clue <laughs> while telling the story. So there are just details I just needed to nix, or things that I kind of needed to sort of add. Like, I, I didn't know if like there was like a big reveal on the letter or not. I just kind of... 
did that on my own. And to be honest, that should have been my biggest giveaway for the first one. I was like, but I was also like, but now well, I'm... if it is the true crime, you won't necessarily have this super well documented thing of like, how did they get the letter? They would just say, I found this letter. Right. Unless, I mean, there are plenty of cases that go into complete detail. You know, things happen. Who's to say? <laughs> are you just trying to save your ass for future episodes? A little bit. <laughs> A little bit. But yeah, there's a like a few like details that I kind of muffed and now I also wanna go ahead and give this book an actual read so that I can actually absorb some of the details. I bet it actually is very interesting and actually makes sense when you read it. Because when I was reading the Spark Notes version, I was like, I am confused. I love it. I'm sorry. Did you say already what your original one was? No, I didn't, and I was leading into that. Okay. So my original <laughs> So I kind of had to scramble for this because I was like, okay, because I knew that I really wanted to do the George Chapman case. And I was scrambling for trying to find a story that used either the same poison or a similar poison. For some reason, I thought that Chapman used strychnine when I was like thinking on my drive back up here to Salem. I was like, ah, I'm going to do poisoning. I'm going to do that guy in murder maps that poisoned his wife with strychnine. It turns out it was Tartar Medic and strychnine was a different guy. Who I might do an episode on, so we might have a poison part two, so don't look. We're gonna need to find another poisoning tall tale, though. Um, but I initially on my drive was like, okay, what would I pair that with? Oh, my mom has talked about endlessly the play Arsenic and Old Lace, and I had never seen it. And I went, oh my god, perfect. I'll watch this movie. I will write about this movie, this play, which the title, gave, like, my mom described it as, oh, it's two old ladies who murder people. And I was like, interesting. With poison? And she's like, yes, with poison. And I'm like, fantastic. This should be dramatic and edgy, like Sweeney Todd, right? So wrong. Is it not good? It, it No, it's good. But it's a 1940s romantic comedy. <laughs> like, like, when I tell you, when I tell you that like, no one was arrested at the end of it. I was like, I can't. Wait, so are you rooting for the women that are killing people? A little bit, but also not. So, like, picture this. This is going to also kind of turn into a wee bit of a movie review, and I will try and keep it as concise as possible. I do recommend this movie. It is just weird. And it also has clear negligence of the police, where they're not okay. investigating anything. And it's right, just like, but oh that's my God. not necessarily unrealistic. I know, but when I tell you my jaw dropped while watching this movie, like, I'm like, what is happening? I tell you, I tell you so much. It stars Cary Grant. Cary Grant is like a play writer who's gets married in secret. He's always been a bachelor, but gets married. I keep expressing that, but he goes home to tell his old aunts that like, hey, I just got married. But they're like, Oh, welcome home. We love you. And then he goes and sits down on a window seat and there's a dead body in there. And the, the old ladies the whole time are just like, yes, we kill people. It's delightful, isn't it? And it's just, and he's just going insane the entire time. He's like, I'm having a crisis. My sweet aunts, who I've known all my life, have killed a person. And then they're like, no, not one person. Twelve! Twelve people! Like, these sweet old ladies kill twelve people. And then there's, like, a whole other plot where his brother is a murderous psychopath as well. Like, it's like, this would be interesting, but, like, no one gets arrested at the end. They all just go to, like, a nursing home, and he's just kind of insane. He's like, this was a mad time, but I'm gonna go back to just my honeymoon now. 
And that, like... <laughs> he just treats it like a fever dream? Like, it was like a fever dream. But, like, what I couldn't get past was just the old ladies. Like, it's kind of hilarious in the fact that these old ladies are just like, yes, we, we murder people, and they're so casual and so sweet. And I'm like, I feel like I'm being gaslit. And I was like, I don't think I can bullshit the crime out of this. <laughs> like, I can't... I don't know. Like, because, like, the, the old ladies successfully don't get caught. Despite many moments where the police are, like, told straight up, there are 12 bodies, actually 14 bodies, in the basement. They're just like, um, They're like, what if we didn't look into that? Yeah, sure. Everyone's insane in this family. Sanity runs in this bloodline. But the movie ends with, like, a happily ever after, like, 1940s, like, instrumental. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? What happened? Anyway, so that's why I didn't write that, and that I had to scramble to find something that would fit the bill, and so I went with Agatha Christie. So, <laughs> that's the story of my kind of two tall tales there. <laughs> Listen, I love this. This one was so very entertaining. I love the way you wrote it. That other movie, The Reject Sounds Insane. It was good, though. I do recommend we watch it. It was fun to watch. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for those lovely tales, our, our true crime and our tall tale. You're very welcome. Happy to provide. To the folks at home, well, it's been real and uncomfy. Thank you for listening. Catch you next time. It's Jack. It's Kat. And Ash. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye.